Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. It's Wednesday, June 29th. From inside the WTOP newsroom, this is the DMV Download, brought to you by the men and women of Steamfitters Local 602. Get an estimate and learn more at steamfitters-602.org. Today, we're looking ahead to the race to become Maryland's next governor. WTOP's Kate Ryan joins us to share what a poll found voters care about and how it might be hard to predict who will win. Would you change your mind? And among Democrats, 63% said, yeah, I could change my mind. And we remember Sam Gilliam, a D.C. painter and pioneer of abstract art who just passed, leaving an imprint on the city and the art world. We talked to the head curator of the Hirshhorn Museum, where his work is on display about his legacy. It was the exposure that Sam received because of these revolutionary paintings that really brought attention to Washington for decades. Thanks for joining us. I'm Megan Cloherty. And I'm Luke Garrett. The upcoming Maryland primary will decide, among other local races, who will square off in the general election for governor. A Goucher poll, which has a margin of error of plus or minus 4%, asks questions of roughly 1,000 voters with the goal of identifying the issues they care most about in this upcoming election. With the primary fast approaching on July 19th, WTOP's Kate Ryan is here to tell us more about what this poll gleaned from Maryland voters. And it was taken earlier this month. We should say she also spoke with each candidate for governor, uh, Democratic and Republican, and profiled their platforms, which you can read on WTOP.com. Before we get into the issues, let's talk briefly about the candidates because we can't go into each singular one. But is there a clear leader so far on either side? It's interesting. Among the Democratic uh, candidates here, you have a three-way tie, effectively. 16% for Peter Francho, Maryland controller. You have 14% for Tom Perez, former labor secretary for the U.S. Mm. So on average, about 15% for the top three. Uh, In the GOP primary right now, Kelly Schultz endorsed by Governor Hogan. She's the former secretary of commerce for the state. Trails Dan Cox, a Maryland state delegate, who has been endorsed by Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. she trails him by about three points. But again, you have that margin of error. And the margin of error, we should say, overall is a Mm 4.4%. In some of the subcategories, it ranges up to 4.9%. So they're close then. Extremely close. Okay. And also of note is the number of voters who say they could change their mind. Yeah, this is a really interesting thing here. So we we, we have two sets of, of figures that you should pay attention to. Undecideds in the Democratic Party, thirty-five uh, percent of the respondents were undecided. Oh, wow. Those who picked a candidate and then were asked, "Okay, you decided on Brand X, uh, would you change your mind?" And among Democrats, sixty-three percent said, "Yeah, I could change my mind." Oh wow! <laughs> so there is a lot of wiggle room no certainty here, here, right? No, not well, as at a all. candidate, you're like, "Well, I guess I don't have what I think I have." I exactly. Mean- well, it, in some ways. It's good because it ups their game and it forces them to be very responsive to to the voters. Mm. And in the GOP, it's similar, although it's not so huge. Forty four percent are undecided of those who did choose a candidate. Forty seven percent said they could change their minds. That's still a very large number of people who at this late date, I mean, we're talking about a July 19th primary, mm-hmm. are going, yeah, I 
think I like this candidate, but it depends on what happens. Yeah, it's very telling. Mm -hmm. Um, In this region, I mean, in our region, Maryland has long leaned Democratic, but it's funny, you know, the poll found that our Republican governor, Larry Hogan, is enjoying a very high approval rating as he's heading out of office. This is stunning as well. And he has, it makes Democratic Party leaders grind their teeth because he has maintained uh, approval ratings in the 60% range for eight years. Sixty well, percent in a blue state among Democrats alone, hmm. he has a sixty-four percent approval rating or favorability. Oh, rating. wow! That's Democrats alone. Among Republicans, though, here's what's interesting: sixty-seven percent. Oh, it's he, not that much higher. No, huh. so you would expect what's going on there. Hmm. In some corners, he's seen as a rhino. Uh, Republican in name only. He right. has been subject to a lot of criticism over his mask mandate. So I think that may be in play here. Mm. But again, for any office holder after eight years in office to be able to say he's still in the 60 and, and high 60 percent range yeah. is absolutely stunning. And what does that mean for the governor's race, if anything? You know, I asked Malia Cromer about this and I said, what magic elixir does he have or, or if, you know, what dust did he sprinkle on the voters to make them say he's wonderful? And she said it's hard to pin down. But I will say that consistently we have looked at the direction the state is going over the course of time during the Hogan years. And Marylanders are generally satisfied with the state of of state government during Hogan's time in office. That's certainly a combination. I mean, it's not just singularly attributable to him, but also the Democratic leadership. He just he's managed to to pull this off. He is a unique uh, Republican in Maryland history. Yeah. And I mean, the numbers at least show that he he is at least received more moderately um, across the state. Absolutely. Now, he's touted himself as a bipartisan, as as being able to work with uh, the lawmakers in Annapolis but they would counter he has to because they can override vetoes. They've done it over and over again. Oh, so the so position of the, the it, power struggle. That's what yeah. makes it unique as well. Um, let's talk about the issues that the Goucher poll found because um, it was specifically asking about certain topics and how voters felt on those topics. And we should say, too, this poll was taken before the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. So we were in this sort of couple weeks before that decision came down. Let's start with that, and then we can talk about the other issues. Right. So uh, now Maryland has a very strong uh, 60% approval for abortion rights, and that was codified in Maryland law. So not doing this poll after the decision that might have popped abortion up to more of the uh, top-line concern for voters. Mm. So she came up with, Malia Cromer came up with, and we should say, by the way, Malia Cromer is the director of the Sarah T. Hughes Center for Politics at Goucher College. Um, her polls are very highly regarded in uh, across Maryland and certainly by both parties. But she came up with basically five issues that popped up again and again. But here's the interesting part, and I'll let her tell you about it. For much as much division as we see between Democrats and Republicans, there is something at least they can agree on, and that's the cost of gas, inflation, and crime and public safety. Those are three issues that members of both parties seem to be really concerned about, and I think certainly you see it reflected in some of the campaigns for governor. So one issue that I actually asked about um, was transportation, and and she kind of laughed and said, well, yes, but it's interesting well, they did ask about roads and bridges. Mm-hmm. Um, public transit is not an issue for many GOP voters, according to Cromer. 
it is for de- Democratic. For this region, two of the largest uh, jurisdictions, Prince George's and Montgomery County, it's all about traffic, right? Yeah. We know that from our traffic reports. We get the calls. It's the Beltway and 270. Mm. Uh, so the... Democrats, particularly in in that area, are also concerned about things like the Purple Line. So transit comes to mind in those regions. For the Eastern Shore voter, the one thing that might get them is the Chesapeake Bay Bridge and the impact that summer traffic has on their localities on the other side of the bridge. But it's funny how it didn't really scan as a giant issue. The price of gas, big time, (laughs) but not transportation itself. And finally, just just to return to the topics briefly, um, I found this interesting that of Republicans polled 81 percent, Democrats 77 percent, both see democracy and the rule of law in the U.S. as threatened rather than secure. And, you know, in the midst of this week where we've heard this bombastic testimony yesterday during the January 6th hearing, that, I guess that's not really a surprising finding. But man, is that high? 81 percent and 77 percent. And how do you as a candidate um, reignite people's faith in the process while they are concerned for very different reasons about the viability of our democracy. So again, this is a very tough year to be a candidate, um, and it's a a lot of persuasion that's going to have to take effect on a grassroots level. They're really going to have to hit people where they live um, and, and get their hearts as well as their minds. Doesn't help that it's July 19th when most people are saying, where can I park at the beach? Yeah. WTOP's Kate Ryan, thank you for shedding some light on the political reality in Maryland. After the break, D.C. artist Sam Gilliam is being remembered not only for his groundbreaking work, which you've seen everywhere from the airport to the metro, but also for his love of the city. Backed by the experience of its hardworking members, Steamfitters Local 602 is ready to take on your next commercial heating, cooling, HVAC or refrigeration project. Steamfitters Local 602 adds value to our community through its partnerships with local contractors and building owners, all while keeping the focus on improving the lives of its members and their families throughout the DMV. For work that's on time and on budget, go to steamfitters-602.org to schedule your next project. That's steamfitters-602.org. Steamfitters Local 602, changing lives. Gas prices have been going crazy lately, but here at WTOP, we have something that might help. It's called Fuel Your Summer, and it's WTOP's free gas giveaway presented by Astound Broadband. All you have to do is go download the WTOP app, register on the My WTOP page, and enter for your chance to win $100 in gas gift cards per day and the grand prize of free gas for a year up to six grand. During the month of June, fuel up on us. Just download the WTOP app, register, and enter for your chance to win today. Fuel Your Summer is brought to you by Astound Broadband, powered by RCN. Boost your internet with a gig and experience better. Visit astound.com. So check it out as soon as you can. Undulating arrays of color, stained canvases twisted, hung, and draped on a wall. Unsettling beauty. These are just a few descriptions of the art by Sam Gillian a D.C. painter and pioneer of abstract art who brought his medium from two dimensions to three. Gilliam died on Saturday in Washington. He was 88. The beloved D.C. artist died in his studio just a few miles from the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden, where his final summer exhibit displays new works from the prolific abstract painter. It's called Sam Gilliam Full Circle, and Hirshhorn head curator Evelyn Hankins is here now with us on Zoom to tell us about Sam Gilliam and his work. Evelyn, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. 
Whether or not you know his name, first of all, you've seen his work, so we'll start with that, and we're going to get into where you've seen it. But he is among DC's greatest artists, and his paintings were so groundbreaking um, and widely respected around the world for decades. Tell us about San Gilliam's work. I mean, what made it so compelling? Well, for more than 60 years, Sam really committed himself to exploring and expanding the possibilities of abstraction. He was an artist who was deeply committed to really mining the essential elements of painting, form, color, and material. And so he is best known for a series of paintings that he started in the mid-1960s, what are commonly referred to as the Drape paintings. And these were incredibly groundbreaking because he took what he took the traditional stretchers, which is how canvases are stretched on in order to make a painting. And he removed the stretcher bars and instead he draped stained canvases directly on the gallery walls. So he transformed painting conventionally a two-dimensional medium into a three-dimensional medium that Mm. bridges painting, architecture, and installation. But I think the thing that's most important about Sam is that while he is probably best known for the drape paintings, he had an incredibly important practice for more than 60 years. And I think it's important to point out that he was deeply, again, committed to to experimenting with with abstraction during that whole career. Mm. And I, I read in a 2018 Artnet article that, you know, his famous drape paintings that you just referenced were partly inspired by watching, you know, people put up laundry on clotheslines from his studio window in Washington, D.C. So how did Gilliam come to D.C. and what meaning did the city have to his art? Well, first of all, I think the story about the laundry lines was more apocryphal than anything else. And I think in <laughs> recent years, Sam has been trying to was trying to downplay that. But mm. it is it is a good story. Um, Sam came to D.C. in 1962. He had just married uh, Dorothy Gilliam, and she was the first African-American opinions um, writer for The Washington Post. So he came with his family to Washington, and it was there that he transformed from a figurative painter who at that time was really influenced by um, the the Bay Area figurative movement artists such as Nathan Oliveira, um, and suddenly turned into an abstract painter upon seeing um, artists such as Kenneth Noland and the Washington Color School. And as I mentioned at the top of this uh, interview, if you don't know Sam Gilliam's name, maybe you've seen his work because it's in the Tacoma Metro, it's in the Kennedy Center, um, the mural at Reagan National Airport. Can you tell us about how, you know, we talk about how he lived in D.C., but he really made an imprint on D.C.? He absolutely made an imprint on DC, not only through um, exhibiting at all of the different museums here in town, at the Hirshhorn, at the Corcoran. Um, his works are in collections at all of the different museums here in town, but also because he was so committed to public art projects, all of those um, projects that you mentioned at the Kennedy Center and the Tacoma Metro space and at National Airport. But I think importantly, something that's not as visible is how, how much of an important mentor he was to generations of artists working here in DC. Um, you know, his studio was open and available and he was available to support other artists. He knew how hard it was to, to be an artist and to get national exposure while living in Washington, D.C. And he was therefore very supportive of other and younger generations of artists. Right. And D.C. is known for politics. Um, you know, New York and L.A. probably in the U.S. are associated more so even San Francisco with art itself. So, you know, how did Gilliam working in D.C., how did that lift up maybe the whole art world in D.C.? 
the important thing about Sam was is how he took a technique of the Washington Color School. This was a group of painters in the 1960s who inspired by a visit to Helen Frankenthaler's studio in New York City, came up with this revolutionary technique of pouring thinned paint onto a canvas that was unprived. So instead of sitting on top of the canvas, it stained the material. And that's really the trademark technique of the Washington Color School. Sam took that technique and then ran with it, literally, when he started making the drape paintings. And then he moved away from it. But I think it was the exposure that Sam um, received because of these revolutionary paintings that really brought attention to Washington for decades, actually, not just in the 1960s. Now, Gilliam's artistic career started in the 1960s and 70s within the abstract movement, meaning he was a black man in an art community dominated by you know white men and it was also a tumultuous time in history. So how did that impact his art? Um, the conversation about Sam Gilliam and his relationship to the current cultural moment, whether it is now or in the 1960s, is a complicated one, like it is for all artists. Um, Sam was obviously very aware of the racism that existed in the United States in the 60s and continues to this day. Um, and what's interesting about his work is on one hand, he didn't want his work judged through the lens of, of his own identity only, or he didn't want it being judged through the context of, of the history that was happening at the moment that he made the paintings. But at the same time, he, he was an artist who didn't give many um, paintings the title untitled. He always had these very poetic titles, and sometimes they referenced things that were happening at that moment, such as um, the day that Martin Luther King was assassinated. And so I think what it is with Sam is he kind of wanted to live in this space of he could evoke certain things, but his painting was much more about personal expression and the opportunity that we could all come together and, you know, experience an artwork together and have some kind of shared experience. So I would say that it it's sometimes related to the historical moment, but that you have to think of it in a much broader context in the arc of abstraction. Um, moving now to the exhibit that's open at the Hirschhorn, and it opened back in May, so we know that he had a chance to sort of help you, you know, put that together perhaps. Can you talk about that process and what visitors can can expect if they come visit? Um, working with an artist is one of the great joys of being a contemporary art curator. Um, instead of working with a historical figure, you get to be in dialogue and get to know an artist. And I have to say that Sam Gilliam is an artist who I have been a fan of since I was an undergraduate. So um, we started talking about an exhibition a few years ago, and um, we finally landed on this idea of showing new work, a series of circular paintings called Tondos um, that are very appropriate for our circular galleries. And Sam, again, is an artist who was very much looking to the future. Um, that's why he wanted to show new work. But I, as a curator, am an art historian, and I'm interested in history. So I proposed to him that we show one of the landmark paintings in our collection, a painting called Rail that was made in 1977. And what's so beautiful about this exhibition is that you have this wonderful conversation between history and the present moment. And you can see one of the trademark elements of Sam's practice, which was circling back to some of the same ideas and rethinking them through. So the new paintings are all made on balsa wood and are circular. Rail is rectangular and is made on canvas. Um, the new paintings are, um, they're all very material. They're very thick and densely painted, filled with different kinds of materials from the studio, not just paint, but also sawdust, metal, even chunks of wood you can find 
fine in some of the paintings. Mm. Um, their primary color is white, though I would also call, call them prismatic. And then Rael is primarily black, but it too is filled with all, all of these different colors. So what you have here is an opportunity not only to see some of the last paintings of Sam Gilliam, but also get a sense of the practice more broadly. And I think that's one of the things that makes the Hirshhorn show so incredibly, incredibly important. And, you know, if we were to go to this exhibit, I am, you know, a layperson in the art uh, world, but what should I really look out for? You know, abstract art sometimes feels a little distant, but how, how can I approach it and how can I get close to it? Um, I would encourage people to trust their eyes and to take their time. When you enter the space, um, rail, which is the, the earlier painting, as I mentioned, is somewhat overwhelming. It's the first thing when you see in the space. I would encourage people to get closer to it and to really let themselves be encompassed by it because it's a very large scale painting. And then when you move through the space and you look at all of the, the circular new paintings, again, getting closer into the paintings, of course, staying a proper distance so that the right. guards don't get worried. Um, <laughs> But I would encourage people to really spend time looking at the intricacies of these paintings. They open up into these amazing kind of cosmoses in themselves. Mm. I mean, I think it's it's very easy for some people to just walk through the space and go, oh, a bunch of circular paintings. But each painting is different and, is, and really contains its own world. So I think with abstraction, I always encourage visitors just to trust their eyes and take their time. Can I ask, just because I've always been interested in this, how you decide where to put the paintings it, do they do they kind of like link to each other and tell a story or is it more of a color thing? It obviously depends on the artist, but I'm interested in this specific exhibit. It's um, well, it's interesting you say that with this exhibition, because Sam was actually pretty hands off in deciding how to actually display the work. And so um, we took all of the paintings out of their crates and lined them up on the walls. And then I started making groupings. But what was so fascinating about the show is I originally laid it out. We had each set of paintings on the wall and I had um, I'm kind of a type A, tightly wound curator, and I had <laughs> laid them out all evenly spaced and it wasn't singing in the space like the paintings were beautiful, mm. but it wasn't. It hadn't snapped, I would say, into mm -hmm. a, a, an exhibition. And then I remembered that Sam Gilliam was highly influenced and was incredibly versed in jazz. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to take this kind of improvisational approach, which was the core of his practice, and try to embrace it for the show. So I worked with our installation crew and started moving the paintings around. And so they have different spacings. And so that's an example of a moment of how a show came together in a way that I wouldn't have expected. But in the end, it gives this, the paintings a sort of different kind of life. And so I would say that when it comes to installing shows as a curator, you just have to kind of keep on trying until it, you get to a point where you think it's as good as it possibly can be. And thankfully, Sam had an opportunity to come to the opening and to see the show and to be pleased with it. And the entire staff at the Hirshhorn is, is very glad for that. So wonderful. I'm glad we're getting a chance to talk about his legacy and his art and, and the, you know, the art of arranging art, which is a, a thing <laughs> within itself. Um, Evelyn Hankins, who is the head curator at the Hirshhorn Museum. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And before we go, you know, the price of everything is going up. Gas, food, you know, you name it. Yeah. But in particular, blue crabs, Chesapeake blue crabs are also going up. And the state of Maryland is trying to do something about it. Um, I was at the beach this past weekend and it was like a half dozen crabs was like almost $100. Are you kidding? No, it was crazy. Mm. And it's sad because it is like something that people like to eat in the summer, especially around here. And it shouldn't be a surprise to us because the populations for blue crabs are at the lowest level since record-keeping even started around three decades ago. Really? Yeah, what I mean, it's, it's really low. And 
you know, there have been restrictions on female crabs, you know, and, and yeah. harvesting them. Yeah. But now, for the first time ever, they're starting to put restrictions on harvesting male crabs um, just to, you know, boost populations because they're really low. That makes sense. That's why you're paying so much. So you really got to love them to want to buy them. Right. And it really does get to this point of, you know, conservation does maybe in the short term raise prices, you know, because you're limiting the number of crabs or anything you can really harvest. But yeah. in the long term, it really does boost populations, which we'll see gains for in the future. So hopefully this effort does work out in the long run. And we see populations of blue crabs go up. Mm-hmm. So you can save your old bay for next year, maybe. Yes. Or just put it on chicken popcorn or literally anything. <laughs> That'll do it for us today on the DMV Download, sponsored by Steamfitters Local 602. Our managing editor is Craig Schwab, and our music is by Real World. Give us a review and rate our show if you get the chance. We read those reviews, seriously. And follow us on social media where we post content every day from behind the scenes. You can find out more about this show and become one of our VIP listeners at dmvdownload.com. Listen to the DMV Download, which is a product of WTOP News on 103.5 FM in the D.C. area, 107.7 FM in Virginia, 103.9 FM in Frederick, online at WTOP.com and on the WTOP News app. Have a good night.